I am, I'm sure that every one of us here this morning can, can relate to what I'm going to describe to you. All of us have been in painful situations, confusing situations, maybe, maybe um, situations that are scary, um, where you get to the point where you understand everything that has happened. Like you understand what has happened. You don't have any more questions about what occurred. But there's that one question that still hangs over that painful situation. That painful is, of course, why? Or that question is, of course, why? Like, I know what happened, but why did this happen? God, if you're real and you're good and you love me, why did you let this happen? I think the most sort of symbolically representative example of this situation is the story of a guy named Glenn Chambers. This is clear back in 1947. Glenn Chambers was going to be a, a missionary to Ecuador, and he, he was leaving from Miami, and he got on a plane flying to Ecuador to start his career as a missionary, and that plane crashed. He didn't make it. And everyone on board that plane died. But back in that airport in Miami before he took off, he got the urge to write his mom a letter. And he had a pen, but he didn't have anything to write on. He couldn't find any paper. And he looked all around that airport, and he, find, he found this flyer, this advertisement for something. On one side of it was printed in big block letters the question, Why? And he turned that over and he wrote his mom a letter and he found an envelope and he got it mailed. And Glenn Chambers' mom, days after she learned that her, husband, or that her son had been killed in that plane crash, gets a letter in the mail, obviously addressed to her from her son. And she opens it up and unwraps the front side of that advertisement and it just says, from her son, Why? In one way or another, you can relate to Glenn Chambers' mom. You've been in that situation where the only question you can unwrap is, why? Maybe for you is when you were young and your parents told you that they were going to divorce. Maybe you have gotten a diagnosis Maybe when you struggled with fertility problems and seemed like nobody else did. When somebody else made the team and you didn't. When, when that loved one of yours suddenly died, whatever it is, you've been there. I think I know what happened, but I don't know why. I want to read with you the story this morning of when Jesus' best friend got to his why moment. Jesus' best, best friend by most accounts was a guy named John. And, and John tells this story today. And I think what we're going to see in the first nine verses of John chapter 20 is just a little snippet of the Easter story. I think we see John get to a point where a light bulb goes off and he understands what has happened, but he doesn't know why. It doesn't take John long 
to figure out why. We won't read it this morning, but I want to share with you the answer to John's why. Why did this happen? And then I want to tell you how knowing the answer to that question can help you navigate the next time you are in one of those situations where the only question, the only thing you can do is just look toward God and just say, why? I think this can help you. We're going to read our passage in John chapter 20. It'll be on the screen. There's black Bibles underneath uh, chairs in front of you if you want to grab one of those. We are picking up right at the beginning of that first Easter Sunday. So Jesus was crucified on a Friday. He was buried right at sundown before the Jewish Sabbath started at sundown Friday night. And his Jewish friends couldn't do any work until sunrise Sunday morning. So where we pick up, some of Jesus' friends are going to be the first people to come to his tomb. We know from the other gospel writers they were going to do some more respectful burial things uh, with his with his body. Let's read our passage together. I better drive this thing, I guess. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 9. This is the New American Standard uh, Version. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. And she saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him. And Peter entered the tomb, and he saw the linen linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. But as yet they did not understand the Scripture that Jesus must rise again from the dead. In the first two verses of John chapter 20, John zeroes in like he does sometimes in his story on, in this case, one character at the exclusion of others and then two characters at the exclusion of others. He likes to zero in on a person or two at a time and make this be like their story. The other gospel writers tell us that There were other women that came with Mary to the tomb that morning, Mary Magdalene. Um, John just focuses on her, but we know there were other women there. Even she says when she runs back to them, she says, they've taken away the Lord and we don't know where they put him. And in a minute, well, she says, John says she went back and talked to just Peter and John because this is their story, even though the other disciples were there too. But at any rate, this Mary Magdalene is a the woman named Mary. She comes from a place called Magdala. So saying Mary Magdalene is just differentiates her from the other women named Mary. Sometimes it seems like half the women in the Gospels are named Mary. So it's nice to have a last name of sorts. Mary comes early to the tomb. The stones rolled away, this big heavy stone that had been guarded. And her initial reaction is, Somebody stole Jesus' body. 
She doesn't take a guess at who. She just knows the body's not there, so obviously someone stole it. Now, if Jesus' body were stolen, which is still believed by many people, who it was that stole Jesus' body is, a, is an important question to answer. Because I don't think anybody would have been motivated to do that. The Romans did not steal Jesus' body. Here's why. The Romans were guarding that tomb. The only reason the Roman governor Pilate agreed to crucify Jesus was not because he thought Jesus was guilty of anything. He clearly didn't. Pilate just wanted the hubbub surrounding Jesus to die and decided, well, the best way for that to happen is to kill Jesus, to execute him. Stealing his body wouldn't have helped the hubbub die. It would have restarted it again. So the Romans didn't steal Jesus' body. Jesus' Jewish opponents absolutely wouldn't have stolen Jesus' body because they knew Jesus had predicted his resurrection. They, didn't. they wanted the Jesus movement to die, not to resurrect. The most popular theory about who stole Jesus' body is that Jesus' followers... The disciples got to that tomb, somehow got past the the Roman guards, paid them off even though they could have been punished or killed by the Romans for for failing at their duty. But they got into that tomb somehow and they stole Jesus' body and they made up this lie about the resurrection to start a fake religion just so they wouldn't appear like they had been wrong for the last three years as they were following Jesus. Here's the problem with that theory. People will lie. I don't know if you know this, but people lie sometimes. I won't make you raise your hands. People do lie, but they lie to profit. They lie to be more popular. They lie to get something good out of it. Jesus' disciples, for believing in a resurrected Jesus, here's what they got out of it. Persecution and execution. (laughs) Nobody lies for the, for the thrill of being persecuted and executed and to a person, man and woman, no, no one recanted, no one sold out what would have been a lie. But regardless, that's Mary's first assumption too. Someone stole his body. There's one other group of people, a kind of person, who was actually fond of robbing graves Right? Their grave robbing was a real thing. Not too long after this story, not too many years after this story, the new Roman emperor Claudius passed a law that said he wanted the death penalty for grave robbers because it was pretty common. So maybe, maybe there were grave robbers involved. More on that in a second. So Mary and her friends come back and tell all of the disciples, hey, somebody took Jesus' body. And then Peter and John take off to run toward the tomb in verse 3. Verse 4 tells us they start together, but that John ran faster than Peter and got to the tomb first. I want to say a couple of things about that. First, I want you to be confident this is John. John, in writing his own story of Jesus, the gospel of John, he doesn't call himself by his name. He always calls himself these pseudonyms, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the other disciple, the beloved disciple. Take my word for it here, it's John. At the end of the book, he calls himself that, and then he says, by the way, that's me, John, who's writing this. 
Okay, so I want you to know that is John running with Peter. Second thing I want you to know about this race to the tomb is I want to encourage you to not try to wring any deep symbolic meaning out of John running ahead of Peter and getting there first or, or any deep theological meaning. That's been done to me, it strikes me as kind of weird, and it doesn't enforced, and it doesn't fit. Here's what I think this means: John was faster than Peter and had more endurance than Peter. That's like that's the story. That's it. Like if we decided after church was over that we were all going to run to T Junction for lunch, some of us would get there before others. Correct, and it wouldn't have anything to do with our spirituality or anything. Like here, if I beat you to T-junction from here in a race, here's what it would mean. You are one out of shape hombre. That's what it would mean. It wouldn't mean much else, I don't think. But anyway, they, they run to the tomb. John gets there first in verse 5. He bends down and just looks into this tomb, which would have been like a cave uh, carved out of rock. He just looks in. He doesn't go in. I think I know why. Because it's a grave and that's creepy. And no one wants to do that. So he just looks in. And he can see these lin- this linen that Jesus' corpse had been wrapped in. Then, in verse 6, Peter gets there. And because he's Peter and he never thinks about what he's doing or saying anyway, he just does it. He ducks in. He goes right in that tomb. And he sees what John saw, the linen that his body was wrapped in, he sees something else. There was a face cloth of some kind that had been wrapped around Jesus' head and it's rolled up and it's placed in a little different spot. And now here's where we find the problem with a theory that this was grave robbers who stole Jesus' body. No one really holds to this theory, even people who don't like the Bible. Here's why. If you were going to rob a grave, which would make you weird, I'm just going to say it, but if you were going to do that, think about this. Who would unwrap the corpse (laughs) so they could carry the body by the actual body, right? No one would do that. Secondly, if you're committing a crime and you want to get in and out quickly, this would have not been like unzipping a body bag. This is wrapped up. Who takes the time to unwrap this? And third, Jesus wasn't like some rich people who were buried with valuable things. Right? The reason people robbed graves is because back then, people buried their loved ones with valuable stuff that was supposed to help in the afterlife or whatever. Jesus was buried with nothing. The, literally the only thing of any value at his, in his grave was the linen. So if this was grave robbers, they literally left the valuables there. They committed a crime, but left the valuables there and just took out a worthless corpse. And in verses 8 and 9, this is the part I wanted to get to. This is, this is John's why moment. Yeah, but why, God? This is it. Right here in verse 8. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first, that's John. He came in, and it says he saw and believed. He saw and believed. Well, what did he see? The only thing he sees is a tomb with no body in it and those linen wrappings. He sees those two things, and he believes something. 
What does he believe? Well, verse 9 says, he, John writes about himself, that he didn't understand what the scriptures said about why Jesus had to rise from the dead. Here's what I think we, we learn right here. John, standing in that empty tomb, seeing those empty graves clothes, came to this realization. By the way, that word for see or saw in verse 8, that's a different Greek word than the previous words for saw that he's used. This word means to see and understand. Like sometimes when you say, oh, I see, and you mean I see, but I get it. That's what this word means. He saw the empty grave and those empty graves clothes, and he understood And he believed. Here's what I think he believed. Jesus rose from the dead. Like he's alive again. He came back to life. You know what verse 9 means? But I didn't know why. I think fairly quickly, personally, I believe John was the first one to understand this. At least in this story. He put himself in this story as the first one to believe. I think John began to remember. Jesus said this would happen. What I'm going to read you here, what's on the screen. Jesus told his disciples this just a week before that Easter Sunday. Jesus spoke of himself in the third person. So Jesus is talking about himself. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, which would be what we call Palm Sunday... He took the twelve aside privately and said to them, Look, boys, here's what's about to happen. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's Jesus' name for himself, I will be handed over to the chief priests and the experts in the law. They will condemn me to death. They're going to turn me over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged severely and crucified. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. John remembers this. Now, John didn't think any of that was actually going to happen. He he thought this was one of those things where Jesus said something kind of confusing and they didn't get it. John never thought any of this was going to go down until he's standing in an empty tomb. He, He saw them go to Jerusalem. He saw Jesus handed over to the chief priests and the experts in the law. He saw him get beaten, flogged, severely humiliated. He saw him get crucified. And now he's standing in an empty grave, looking at empty linen graves clothes that no one would have left behind had they stolen him. And John goes, I'll be darned. The only logical explanation is he rose from the dead. But he's still got one question. What's John's question? Why? Why did this happen? If Jesus were powerful enough to pull this off, after that death, walking out of here alive, if he could pull that off, he could have stopped his execution in the first place. He could have kept all that from happening. Surely. Why didn't he? If Jesus loved us, his friends, why would he make us go through that pain, that hurt, that confusion, that fear? Why? 
This is John's why moment. It doesn't take John that long to figure out why. He figures it out within 40 days. More on that in a second. But I want to tell you why John learned the cross and the resurrection had to happen. A guy named Walter Moberly said this, and I love it. Easter is the interpretation of Good Friday. Easter, the resurrection, is the interpretation or the explanation for the cross. So the cross is where I want to start in explaining why. No one, no one in the history of anybody has ever looked more like he was losing at life than Jesus looked like he was losing at life when he was crucified. Here's what happened. His enemies plotted a way to make the, convince the Romans to execute Jesus. And then they stood at the foot of his cross and yelled things at him that basically meant, you lose and we win. They said things like, if you're really the son of God, why don't you save yourself? Oh, you can't? That means you're not who you said you were. You lose. We win. Nobody's ever looked more like a loser than Jesus looked on the cross. Later, John would remember Jesus saying this, though. Also in the book of John. Jesus said, no one takes my life away from me. I lay it down of my own free will. I have the authority to lay my life down, and I have the authority to take it back up again. On the way in from sunrise service this morning, we were listening to a preacher on the radio said Jesus was the only person who ever lived who chose to die. And I love this point. There are people who choose when they will die, and they make a terrible mistake. But nobody ever decided whether or not they would, except for Jesus. So here's John, standing in that grave, understanding, okay, you did this. I know what has happened. I know you were crucified. I know you were buried. I know you have risen again. But why go through with it? If you've been in church much, or if you've read the Gospels, have you ever been surprised by how many times Jesus predicted the cross and the disciples were still shocked when it happened? You ever wonder about that? Like, uh, how can you guys be surprised? He's told you like 10 times that it's going to happen. Are you dense? They're not. Don't be so hard on the disciples. Do you know the disciples had plenty of biblical reasons to believe Jesus would never die? Because the disciples had become convinced and Jesus admitted to them that he was something called the Christ in Greek, or the Messiah in Hebrew. You know what that is? It's a king. And I want to give you a little bit of insight that nobody else is getting. You had to come to this church to hear this insight right here this morning. Dead guys don't make great kings. Right? When someone dies, their political career usually is over. Right? Although a dead person probably could have won our last election, but that's a, diff- that's a different story. Usually, when a person dies, their chance of becoming king is obviously over. I want to show you what the prophet Isaiah said and the disciples believed to be true about Jesus. This is 700 years before Jesus lived. 
The prophet Isaiah said a Messiah, a Christ, a king would be born. And speaking about that as if it's already the present tense, the prophet Isaiah wrote this, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For to us, a child is born. To us, a a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. What's that mean? He'll run the government. He'll He'll be a king. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of His government and the peace He will establish, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over David's kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from the time He takes that throne forever. That's who the disciples knew Jesus to be. Now do you understand why they thought, well, he's not going to die. Because a dead guy can't do that. I could take you to lots of other places in the Old Testament that talk about the Messiah. And none of it, or very few of it, very few places look like it's somebody who's going to be dead. Now, someone who's alive again? can still do this. See, the disciples are not, are not wrong to think Jesus will do that. They're just early. Because Jesus will. And listen, this is not just some... Jesus will reign on a throne, and it's David's throne. The disciples were, ra- were waiting for him to reign on David's throne, which is not up in the sky. It's not reigning in our hearts. David's throne was in Jerusalem. Like on earth. That's who they knew Jesus to be. And they weren't wrong. They're just early. But standing in that tomb, John doesn't understand all of that. And even if he did, okay, so you rise again and you can still be king. But why? Why die in the first place? Why go through the cross at all? Why not just start the kingdom and let's get on with it? Why die and live again when you can just keep on living? The answer to that is because if Jesus had started his kingdom while he was alive the first time, very soon he would have been the only person in it. Because the Bible says only the righteous will enter the kingdom. And the Bible also says there's no one righteous. Not even one. Nobody gets in based on their own righteousness. And God promised that Messiah would rule from David's throne over a vast kingdom full of people. So how was God going to get unrighteous people into a kingdom where only righteous people can enter? That's why the cross. From the same book of Isaiah, 700 years before the crucifixion, Isaiah wrote this about Messiah. So just as there were, there were many people who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured, he was beyond, excuse me, beyond that of any human being, and his form was marred beyond human likeness. Translation, he got beat up so bad you couldn't even recognize him. He barely looked human. Verse 15, even so, he will sprinkle, that's an Old Testament word for purify. He will sprinkle or purify many nations and kings will shut their mouths before him, will be silent before him. A few verses later, 
Isaiah wrote about this future Messiah. He will be despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, or a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised and we didn't like him. Verse 4, Surely he took up our pain, he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken, that God had stricken him. He, we thought he was being punished for something he had done. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Yet the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, since Genesis chapter 3, God has been teaching this truth. If you sin, I'll kill you. The Bible sometimes says the wages of sin is death. When the day that you sin, surely, surely you will die. Sin costs blood, it says in other ways, in other places. At the cross... The Bible tells us that Jesus became sin and the punishment, the wrath God required so that he's not a liar and say sin costs death, but no, it doesn't really. He just poured out the punishment we deserve for our sin on his son. And then Paul tells us what God does for those who believe that that's what he did at the cross. God takes his righteousness and puts it on believers. And righteousness is what it takes to get into the kingdom that the risen king will reign over. And all of that is the the reasons why the cross had to happen to forgive our sin, to take the punishment, the death penalty our sins deserved, and why the resurrection had to happen because God promised his Messiah would reign on David's throne forever. But John didn't understand why that morning. Didn't take him long to figure it out, though. Within 40 days, he was standing on a mountaintop with the other disciples, and he already understood. At some point, the disciples understood, Oh, you paid for our sin at the cross, and now because you rose again, you can be king. That's why in the first chapter of the book of Acts, look at this question. Here's how clearly they understood The disciples asked the risen Jesus before he ascended into heaven, Lord, is this the time when you're going to be king? Is it kingdom time? Like, we get it now. You had to die so that our punishment could be paid for and we could be seen as righteous so that we could get in the kingdom. But now that you're alive again, you can be king. Let's go. And Jesus said, no, not yet. And Jesus is still 2,000 years later waiting to fully inaugurate his kingdom. To come again and reign. You know why he's waiting? For you. That day when the disciples asked, will you be king now? We want to see the kingdom. Will you do it now? You know what Jesus told his disciples? You don't worry about when. Here's what you do. I want you guys, because you know why. 
You know why I was crucified. You know why I rose again. I want you to go into Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts, uttermost parts of the world and tell everybody why this stuff happened. Because only the people who know why and believe in the why get to be in the kingdom. And I want everybody there. And all of that is the why. But the beginning of this sermon, I told you that if you understood that why, why the cross happened, why the resurrection happened, I told you that would help you the next time you're in a situation where you just go, why God, why me, why now, why this, why'd you let this happen, why didn't you stop this? I told you understanding why the cross happened and why the resurrection happened can help you next time you're in that situation. And how can that be true? How can knowing about Jesus help someone when their marriage is breaking up? Help someone when they don't know why their loved one died, why they got the diagnosis? How can knowing the answer to John's why help us in that. You know what I wish? You know what I wish I could tell you? I wish this was the way it worked. I wish I could tell you, if you believe in, in these things I just explained about Jesus' cross and resurrection, if you believe in those things, then Jesus will make it to where you don't have any more of those situations. Or you'll never ask, why me? Why now? Why this? Why God? I wish that's the way it worked. It doesn't work that way. You know why? Because this world is broke. It's broken. It doesn't run the way it it should or it would where it's still perfect. But hear this and think about this. If what I explained about the cross and the resurrection of Christ is not true, this world isn't broken. It's not. If Jesus really hasn't offered salvation through his cross and proof of it and hope through his resurrection, this world's not broken. If, if karma of the Hindu persuasion is correct, that thing you are suffering or have suffered, when you say, why God, this isn't right, this isn't fair, why me? You know what karma says? It is too fair. You're just being punished for something you did in a previous life. You may not remember it, but that don't make it unfair. Or if God's not real, And we just are God's distant and absent and hands off. And this just all evolved in a one in a gazillion chance. What you think is brokenness and unjust is not. It's just the natural order of things. It's the way, it's the only way it could possibly work. But I would submit to you, you know that's not true. When you had that miscarriage when your loved one died in that accident, when your parents divorced, when you were the victim of a crime, when you were abused, something in your soul cried out, this isn't right. This isn't supposed to be like this. And you were correct. And you know You were correct. It shouldn't be this way. There's something in our hearts that no, it's not supposed to be that way. You know why? Because he put it there 
And when he stepped into this world, here's what he came to do. To be the ultimate victim of injustice and crime and death and innocence being persecuted. You name it, he felt it. And he rose again to show you that he's bigger than everything that has hurt you. Because everything that has ever hurt you was put on him and he defeated it. And here's how that will help. If you believe why Jesus went to the cross and why he rose again, here's why that will help. It may not fix that day in that situation, but it gives you what Peter called a living hope to cling to. Through that pain, you have a Savior saying to you, I know what that feels like. Is that unjust? Is that unfair? Is that humiliating? Is that painful? Does that cause death? I know what that feels like. And I want you to know someday I'm going to get you out of there. I'm going to get you out of there to a place where there is no more brokenness. I will dry every tear from your eye. I will fix everything that has ever been wrong. What you are feeling is brokenness. And I am the only one, Jesus says, who can fix it and defeat it and heal it. And I did it through my cross and through my empty tomb. Pray with me. Father God, I, uh, I do not know how my friends here this morning have asked why to you, but I know they have. Because we have all been touched in maddeningly differing ways, unfair ways where some people get a little bit of injustice and other people get piles of it. But we've all been touched by pain and hurt and brokenness and injustice. Thank you that at at your cross, you felt all of it so that you understand and that you paid for our sin. And thank you that at the, at the resurrection, you prove your power over what hurts. And God, while we walk through this imperfect, hurting world, what we want, we want you to say, kingdom time, your problems are done. But you continue to say like you did to the disciples, not yet. Not yet. If I start it now, there's someone who won't hear. If I start it now, there's someone who will be lost. I waited for you. I'm waiting for someone else. And while we wait in this brokenness and ask why, help us cling to your cross and those those empty graves clothes that scream out, you have overcome. You have overcome. I thank you that there is a kingdom coming with a risen king who will see us as righteous enough to get in if we will but believe. Thank you for answering why. In Jesus' name, amen.
you stand and sing with us? <laughs> 